Praise be to God and uh, good morning to everyone. I just heard one voice. Good morning. All right. Thank you for that encouragement. Right. So, like uh, Sharia prayed here, you know, we think about those who couldn't make it, and we know several of us are under the weather, and we continue to pray for them. Uh, that's why I think it's kind of sparsely populated, although it seems full from here. Uh, so, we will be looking at an introduction to the Gospel of Luke today. Um, we saw last week about the geography of Palestine and an introduction basically about the religious aspects and uh, the groups that were available at that time during the Second Temple period, which we call as Second Temple Judaism, which is the context into which Jesus came. And Charlie beautifully took us through several aspects of it, and we saw that last week. Uh, I just want to mention, uh, by way of introduction, that... Uh, we will be looking at 38 sermons from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's actually a series on Luke-Acts. It is written by the same author, so we go from Luke all the way to Acts. And it might take us uh, perhaps the end of next year to do it. Uh, there are 38 sermons on Luke, including the last one and this one. And uh, we haven't figured out how many to do on uh, Acts, but I think it'll be a little more than 38 because of the nature of the book of Acts, Right. So, uh, Luke's Gospel, we will be looking at introduction today, and uh, we will be going through God's promises, the promises of old, as they have been realized for all nations in the person and through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, God's, promise, God's promises realized for all nations in and through the coming and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what we'll be looking at. And uh, today is just an introduction, although we read the first four verses. Uh, I'm not going to expound on the verses. That's not the point of today's passage. I will give an introduction to the Gospel of Luke in particular. We had introduction to all the four Gospels last week by Charlie, right? But today I will be specifically looking at the Gospel of Luke. I'll make a little connection here and there with the book of Acts, and we'll know the reason why very soon. But... It will be an introduction and a survey and an overview of the Gospel of Luke today. Okay? Uh, people at the back, is it clear? I don't know, for some reason there is some kind of resound here. I hope it's clear at the back. Okay. Let me begin with an introduction here. And by the way, this is not a joke. This is a real story that we're going to begin with. This, is, this happened really. Okay? Uh, I'm not sure why John Paul is smiling, but uh, this is a real story uh, that I've read. Uh, I've read the story of an Iranian uh, scientist uh, who had met Jesus through the disillusionment of the Islamic revolution that happened in Iran. So this is an Iranian scientist who came to know Jesus because of the disillusionment that he had because of uh, the Islamic revolution in Iran. He had an incredible brain and a stunning story about his conversion as well. Now in Iran, while he was there, he had witnessed uh, the full force of religious coercion, and he really hated it with all his heart. He knew the evil that was coming about in the nation because of religious coercion. But now, partly because of the disillusionment and anger with Islam that he had, he had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his newfound faith, he began to preach about Jesus Christ and his wonderful conversion story. And all of a sudden, he began as a new Christian to wrestle with this question. Is it wrong to persuade somebody of the truth of the Christian faith? Is it wrong to persuade somebody of the truth of the Christian faith? Now, this man was an expert in breast cancer diagnostics. He had a PhD in that. And the reason I'm telling you this is because his friend helped him analyze this question in his own mind. Now his friend asked him this question. Suppose you met a middle-aged woman from a poor educational background. And she was sitting across a table from you and she had breast cancer. But she didn't know that she had breast cancer. And she doesn't want to do a mammogram. How would you respond as an expert in that field? Now I will let you answer that question in your own minds. But the question that I want to begin with here for us is this. 
Is it important to persuade somebody of the truth of the Christian faith? Is it important to persuade somebody about the truth of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer that the New Testament gives, especially Luke gives, is a resounding yes. Yes, it is right to persuade somebody of the truth of the Christian faith. Now keep this at the back of your minds as we go through the introduction, all right? Keep this at the back of your minds that it is all right to persuade. And Luke uses this biblical word, persuasion, especially in the book of Acts. You know, Paul persuaded the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ whenever he went to a synagogue. It's a biblical word. Okay, so keep that at the back of your minds, please. We'll look at the introduction to the gospel of Luke. First of all, I want to talk about the uniqueness of Luke. How is the gospel of Luke unique? Let's start by looking at two ways in which it is unique. Two ways in which it is unique. First of all, it is the longest gospel. It is the longest gospel. Now, in the Greek New Testament, edited by Nessel Arland, which is a famous uh, version of the Greek New Testament, which a lot of people read, Matthew in that occupies 87 pages. Mark occupies 60 pages. John occupies 73 pages. And interestingly, Luke takes up 96 pages. In terms of the number of pages taken up by any gospel, it is Luke's gospel that has the highest number. Now, when you compare the number of verses, it reveals a similar count. Matthew has 1,071 verses. Mark, up to chapter 16 and verse 8, it has 678 verses. John has 869 verses. And Luke, again, is the longest. It contains 1,151 verses. So, the first reason that Luke's gospel is unique is that it is the longest gospel. The second reason is that it is the only gospel with a sequel. It has the book of Acts. It's the same author who's written both the volumes. Let me elaborate on this. Luke in his gospel introduces Jesus and his ministry, but in the book of Acts, he shows how that ministry is related to the early church era. He begins in, by writing in the gospel of Luke about Jesus and his ministry, and in the book of Acts, he is talking about the early church and the early church era and how these two ministries are related and how Jesus has brought about the church. Now, this connection allows Luke to discuss how God brought about his salvation in Jesus and how the early church preached Jesus and how they carried out their mission to both Jew and Gentile. Now, this is what is the uniqueness of the gospel of, the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Now, when we look at the canonical arrangement as we have in our Bibles, Luke and Acts are separated by one gospel in between, right? And that is the gospel of John. And so we don't see the connection quite in our minds because it is separated by one gospel in between. But when you look at the message of the book, or both the books together, when you look at the themes that run through, these are virtually inseparable books, Luke and Acts together. Now, Luke's gospel often lays the foundation for certain issues that are answered in the book of Acts. Did you hear that? Luke's gospel often lays foundation for certain issues which are unanswered in the book of Acts for us. So in these two ways, oh, I didn't click, okay. In these two ways, you can see that the gospel of Luke is unique. Let's talk about Luke, the author, for a moment. We'll talk about Luke, the author. I want to look at the evidence for Luke the author and understand about him from two different sources. The first one, the first column, the information is drawn from the New Testament. The second is from the traditions, the early traditions that were around the early church. Now in the New Testament we come to understand that Luke was a physician. He was a beloved physician in fact. He was closely in contact with Paul. He was not an eyewitness of the things, most of the things that he was writing about. He did research, he went around talking about it, and, and he analyzed what material needs to be put together. So he was not a direct eyewitness, although he was a traveling companion of Paul from Acts chapter 16 and on. And we'll see that he was traveling along with Paul. But for most of the information that he writes, he was not an eyewitness. And he wrote his gospel with a particular concern for the Gentiles. 
So those are the things that the New Testament makes clear for us. But the traditions, the early traditions, the early history tells us that he was from Syria and that he was unmarried. He was also childless. Obviously, he was unmarried. He was childless, but that's separately given as an information, so I put it there. And he died at an old age. Uh, perhaps some historians say that he died at the age of 84. So he lived till the age of 84. So to summarize everything that we can get from the New Testament and from very reliable sources, we can say Luke is Paul's companion. He's a beloved companion of Paul. He's a medical doctor, possibly from Antioch of Syria, who is not Jewish. We can be sure he's not Jewish, but we can't be sure whether he's a Syrian or a Greco-Roman. One thing is for sure, he's not Jewish, but we, we can't be sure that uh, whether he is a Syrian or a Greco-Roman. And tradition also tells us that he lived a long life. Tells us that he lived a long life. So that's about Luke, the author. Okay. Now we come to Theophilus, who was the recipient of the book, or the recipient of both the books. Um, so, like I said, both the volumes of Luke and Acts were addressed to Theophilus. We read uh, the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. The first four verses of the book of Acts also talk about uh, the book of Acts being written to this man by the name of Theophilus. The word Theophilus, the name Theophilus, consists of two Greek words. Theos, meaning God. Philus, meaning friend or friendly love. Okay, so which means Theophilus means a friend of God, or you could also say it as lover of God. Okay, so it's a friend of God. He seems to be a socially prominent figure, but we do not know where he lived, and we are not certain of his nationality. He could have lived anywhere in the Roman Empire. And if Luke is writing from Antioch of Syria or from Caesarea, he is writing from Caesarea perhaps to anywhere in the Roman Empire where this man is. Now, the recipient had some exposure to the Christian faith. And the fact that he needs reassurance, and that's the reason why Luke was writing this gospel to him, means that he is likely a believer. He is likely a believer in Christ. When we look at the gospel of Luke and the amount of material that he writes about perseverance in the Christian faith, that you need perseverance in the Christian faith, and the amount of material he devotes to discipleship, it suggests that he is already a Christian. Theophilus is already a Christian rather than somebody who is considering becoming a Christian. So Theophilus is most likely a Christian. One more thing, when we look at the book of Acts, there is a lot of material that Luke devotes to Gentile inclusion into the people of God. Gentile inclusion into the church, which is first and initially, a, uh, originally a Jewish movement. Why is he doing that? He is doing that because Theophilus is a Gentile who finds himself in a new community which is originally a Jewish movement. He is finding himself in a new community which is originally a Jewish movement. But curiously for him and disturbingly for him, he finds that this new movement or a new community which is originally Jewish is under intense pressure and is coming under intense persecutions from the Jews. And he may be asking a very basic question to himself. Do I really belong here? Do I really belong here? He's probably wondering whether this new community is really of God. Why are Christians then being persecuted? Why have most Jews rejected the gospel while Gentiles are accepting the gospel? Now Luke here offers assurance by outlining God's plan of salvation. And he explains how this community suffers and why this community suffers. And for Luke, Jesus is God's agent and Gentiles are included in God's work. And what is the result? It is a gospel that highlights the beauty of racial diversity in God's plan. It is a gospel that highlights the beauty of racial diversity in God's plan. Now Luke was primarily writing it to Theophilus, but he was not only writing it to Theophilus. He's writing it to the whole church, especially he's writing it to everybody who has these kind of doubts that Theophilus went through. Do I really belong here? And if I belong here, why is this movement under intense persecution, especially from the Jews, while it originally was a Jewish movement? What is the date of its writing? Now, it's very difficult, obviously, 
to accurately date any ancient document. But looking at the data and sifting through the evidence that we have, an early 60s date would be likely. An early 60s date would be likely. The reason I say that is because when we look at how the book of Acts ends, the book of Acts ends by Paul being in prison or Paul's being in prison. Now, Paul is still preaching the kingdom of God. He doesn't know when he's going to be released. He doesn't know his future yet. So I think Luke leaves the career of Paul open-ended because that's where matters stood when he actually wrote the book. So if we talk about 62 AD for, for the book of Acts, we can say it's very early, probably about 60 or 61 AD in which Luke is writing his gospel. That's very early. Right? So that's the date of writing. You're here so far? Yes? Okay. Next, we'll talk about the context here about the Gospel of Luke. There are four issues that posed an immense challenge to the early church of Luke's time. Four issues that posed an immense challenge to the early church of Luke's time. And as we preach through the Gospel of Luke in CBF, we want to concentrate on these four themes as we look at different passages. Listen to me very carefully, please. This is important. The first thing is the issue of salvation. The first thing is the issue of salvation. How could Gentiles be included as God's people and made co-equal with Jews? Did you hear that? How could Gentiles be included as God's people and be co-equal with Jews? How did the hope of God open up to embrace people of all nations, even to the point of excluding Jewish law and Jewish traditions? How did God's hope open up to embrace people of all nations, even by excluding Jewish law and Jewish tradition? Luke answers these questions as he narrates for us, right from the Gospel of Luke all the way into the book of Acts, how God directed the entire process. How God directed the entire process. This is the issue of salvation. This was a major problem, a major question in the early church of Luke's context. And Luke answers that question for us. So this is one of the themes that we'll be concentrating on as we go through Luke-Acts together. The second issue is the negative response of the Jewish nation. The negative response of the Jewish nation. Now, we said that God is directing the plan. God's plan is underway. And the most natural audience for the message that is the Jewish audience, is largely rejecting the message of God. Now hear me please. God's plan is underway. This is God's plan. God is directing the plan. The most natural audience for it, which is the Jewish people who are God's people, when the message was taken to them, they were largely rejecting the message of hope that was being preached to them. In fact, when the Christians went and preached to the Jews the message of hope, they were being persecuted. Why was God's plan being met with such hostility? Has God rejected the Jewish nation? Now Luke's gospel begins to answer that question by pointing out that that's exactly how the Jews treated and responded to Jesus as well. That's exactly how the Jews treated and responded to Jesus as well. So it's no surprise that when the message of Jesus were the gospel of which he's a center was being preached to them, they were rejecting the gospel. But that's not the whole answer. We will come to the book of Acts and understand if God is really rejecting uh, the Jewish nation and we'll see that he is not. The third thing, the role of Jesus in the plan of God. The role of Jesus in the plan of God. Now hear me please. How do the person and teaching of Jesus fit into this plan of God? How do the person... And the teaching of Jesus fit into the plan of God. How could a crucified man be the center of God's work and bring about the fulfillment of God's promises? How could a crucified man be the center of God's work and bring about the fulfillment of God's promises? Listen please very carefully. The book of Acts provides a considerable part of the answer to this question by talking about the exaltation of Jesus. How can a crucified man be the center of God's plan and be the center of fulfillment of God's promises? The book of Acts is the one that gives a considerable part of the answer to this question. How does it answer the question? God has exalted him to his right hand. He's the Davidic Messiah. He's gone to the right hand of God and he's sending out the spirit. He has the right to send out the spirit. So the book of Acts talks about the exaltation of Christ 
but the foundation for that exaltation is in luke's christology luke helps us understand who this person is by his works and his teachings so we need to understand the gospel of luke for us to understand the role of jesus and who jesus is in the plan of god you're all here yes is that clear so far okay so three things in the context the first thing is the issue of salvation the second thing is the negative response of the jewish nation to the message of hope that was preached to them the third thing is the role of jesus in the plan of god and the fourth theme that we'll be pursuing as we will go through luke acts is what does it mean to follow jesus what does it mean to follow jesus what can one expect when he or she believes in jesus what should a believer in jesus do and how should a believer in jesus live until he returns and until the hope is realized in other words what are believers as a new community to be how are we to live as a new community now this is a theme that luke expounds what was the mission of jesus and what was the mission of the disciples who followed jesus a sizable part of the gospel of luke prepares the disciples for his departure and also prepares them to minister after he has departed and ascended into heaven and so almost 10 chapters will come to that chapters 9 through 19 as we call what we call as the lucan travelog jesus is going with his disciples from galilee all the way to jerusalem and he is talking about the cost of discipleship he is preparing them for his departure and how their ministry is going to be after he departs and ascends into heaven what does it mean to follow jesus we will look at that as we go through luke act so these are four major issues that were troubling the early church of luke's time and luke is answering these questions what are these number 1 the issue of salvation number 2 the negative response of the jewish nation number 3 the role of jesus in the plan of god and number 4 what does it mean to follow jesus what does it mean to follow jesus okay now i just want to concentrate on one of those themes that we talked about which is most important to luke's gospel and that is the role of jesus in the plan and the promise of god the role of jesus in the plan and the promise of god as we look at this gospel and i said there are 36 more messages to come we take it we look at big chunks of the gospel and we do ex- expositions on these things okay and we will get to know how every single unit challenges each one of us to respond to jesus how every single unit every single passage challenges each one of us to respond to jesus The entire gospel, the gospel of Luke answers four significant questions about Jesus. It answers four significant questions about Jesus. Listen please. Number 1. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The gospel begins with the fact right in the first chapters that he is a long awaited messiah. He is a long awaited Jewish messiah who's also a messiah to the whole world. But as we go through the gospel and we see the acts the works of christ and the teaching of christ luke is slowly unraveling for us that he is more than a messianic figure he is more than a messianic figure now we are 2000 years removed from when luke was writing it and we know the entire story because we've been raised with that and so we don't see the beautiful progression with which luke unravels for us who jesus is but as we look at the gospel of luke with fresh eyes and progress in the story bit by bit and see the works of Christ and the teaching of Christ and how both of them go together and what they point to about him and his person we understand how beautifully the unraveling comes that he is more than a messianic figure so who is jesus luke says he is the eternal son of god who's come into our midst as a man he is not just a messianic figure yes he is a messiah but he is more than the messiah he is the eternal son of god who's come into our midst as a man so that is the first question about jesus that he answers the second one why did jesus come why did jesus come luke tells us very clearly and very plainly that he came to die for our sins that he came to die for our sins but he didn't just come to die for our sins he has also come to form a people of god a people of god who renewed by his spirit are able to serve him in righteousness and holiness all the days of their lives 
So he's come to die for our sins, but he's also come to prepare a people for himself who are filled with his spirit, renewed by his spirit, empowered by his spirit to live the kind of life that he's asking us to live. And he came to declare the initial realization of God's promise, a promise that was made in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So there is a continuation from the Old Testament because this is God's promises realized in Jesus Christ for us, for all nations, no matter where you belong. So that's the second question that is answered for us. First one, Luke answers about Jesus is, who is Jesus? The second one is, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come. A third question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Luke says that he revealed the way of God to us. And he said this, when a sinner recognizes that he must turn to God for help, that is the starting of his way back to God. When a sinner recognizes that he must turn to God for help and he cannot do anything by himself. That is the starting of his journey back to God. One of the brothers read for us uh, from, from the prodigal son, isn't it? The prodigal son came back to his senses, says the scriptures. When he came back to his senses, in other words, the Christian word for that is when he repented, when he turned back. How many of my father's servants have food to eat even to spare? And here I'm a starving. So I will go back to my father. And I will not give any excuses but I will just throw myself onto his mercy. Father, make me as one of your servants. Repentance. Repentance. Luke talks about that a lot. And Luke also makes it very clear that the way to God is only through Jesus Christ. The way to God is only through Jesus Christ. And to show his power, Jesus preached the kingdom of God and also the time of fulfillment. He exhibited power over nature, exorcised demons, healed people from disease, and raised one from the dead to show that he could overcome any type of enemy that plagued humanity. All the while, he prepared his disciples for the journey of salvation, showing that glory is attained always through the way of suffering. Glory is attained always through the way of suffering. That's the third question that Luke answers for us. The fourth thing and the last thing that Luke raises and answers for us is, what does Jesus want people to do? What does Jesus want people to do? He calls sinners to repent. He calls disciples to take up his cross daily and follow him. He calls witnesses to take the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the whole world. He promises the spirit for the task. And he also promises us that many will reject the message. And yet, he tells us that we as the disciples of Christ are called to love our enemies and to pray for them. We call to love our enemies and pray for them. So we look at all of these things. I've just summarized that in four questions for us. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? What's the second one? Why did Jesus come? The third one is what did Jesus do? And the fourth one, what does Jesus want people to do? So to sum it all up, at the center of every step of activity in God's plan stands Jesus. Did you hear that? At the center of every step of God's activity in God's plan stands Jesus. He's the center of it all. He's the one who reveals God's way. He's the one who calls disciples. He's the one who sends the spirit. He's the one who brings in God's forgiveness. The gospel is open to all because Jesus is Lord of all. The gospel is open to all because Jesus is Lord of all. And through Jesus, God's promises are now realized for all nations. God's promises are now realized for all nations. And Luke here states that he is writing to reassure Theophilus that it is a reassurance that only comes because Jesus is a source of divine blessing. And Theophilus would only be right in embracing him as his Lord and as his Savior and as the bearer of God's grace and promise. So that's the basic introduction about the gospel of Luke. Let's look at the structure and the argument of Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel breaks down very nicely into four uh, geographical, sorry, three large geographical divisions, but we can have uh, four major sections of it. Look at this. The first one in chapters 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, you have the introduction of Jesus and John. 
You have the introduction of both John and Jesus. John is the forerunner in God's program and Jesus is the one who comes after him who is the fulfillment of everything. So we have the introduction of John and Jesus. The next thing you have the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. This is Jesus' Galilean ministry. Here, Jesus reveals who he is by his teaching and his works. So Luke wants to progressively reveal for us in this Galilean section or the Galilean ministry section who Jesus is. It's a revelation of Jesus. goes all the way from chapter 4 verse 14 through chapter 9 and verse 50. And then Jesus sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Why? Because he knew the plan for which he'd come to this world and he had to fulfill his father's business, as he said when he was a 12-year-old boy, and he resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem and starts walking towards Jerusalem. And so 10 chapters, all the way from chapter 9, verse 51, to, uh, through chapter 19, verse 44, you have the Jerusalem journey. Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem along with his disciples, and there is Jewish rejection on the way and the new way that he talks about And especially the concentration is much on the cost of discipleship. There is a cost, there's a sacrifice involved in discipleship. And finally, the Son of God, or the perfect man, according to Luke, he goes to Jerusalem, he ministers in Jerusalem, he gets into controversy, the plot heightens there, and he dies, he's slain on the cross, he's raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven. So that's chapter 19, verse 45, all the way till chapter 24, Verse 53. We'll see that in the map. You know, last, last week, uh, Charlie showed the map for us. This is almost the same map. You have Galilee here. So Jesus' ministry is in Galilee in the first section. This is Galilee. And in the next 10 chapters, what we call as Lucan Travelogue, he travels all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he's on the way there. It's about 160, 170 kilometers. So he's traveling there along with his disciples, and Luke devotes 10 chapters for it almost. And then he comes to Jerusalem. This is the Passion Week, as we call it. He comes to Jerusalem. He gets into controversy with all of the religious leaders there, and he dies. He rises again on the third day, and he ascends into heaven. So that's the geographical divisions for the Gospel of Luke. The ministry primarily first happens here in Galilee. That is the year of Jesus' popularity. Many people come to him, and then you have... Jesus traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem and then he comes to Jerusalem, he ministers there, dies and rises again. Now when you look at the synoptic gospels, hear me please, when you look at the synoptic gospels, they basically follow this structure and that's why they're synoptics, you see, right? So Jesus ministers in Galilee and Perea and then he travels to Jerusalem, ministers in Jerusalem, dies and rises again. But the difference, you see, will be in John's gospel. In John's gospel, when you look at succeeding chapters, he is alternating between Galilee and Jerusalem. He's in Galilee at one moment, in the next chapter he's in Jerusalem. Then he's in Galilee again, then he's in Jerusalem. You don't see a good structure there in terms of geography in John, but in the Synoptic Gospels it's clearly laid out for us, especially in Luke. He is ministering in Galilee first, and then he travels from Galilee to Jerusalem, and then he goes to Jerusalem, ministers there, dies, rises again, ascends into heaven. What is interesting for us to notice is the geography here for the book of Acts. We see that Jesus here ministers in Galilee. He comes to Jerusalem, dies and rises again, ascends into heaven, having given a commission to the disciples, right? What is the geography of the book of Acts? Jerusalem in the reverse order. You see Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Luke is bringing Jesus into Jerusalem and the gospel is going out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts. So you see the geography matching as well in, in Luke-Acts, this two-volume two volume books that, uh, that Luke put together for us. So what we'll do is we'll briefly expand on each section as we go through it now and uh, we will see uh, a brief survey of these major sections and then we'll have some applications and then we'll close. The first one is the introduction of John and Jesus. Open your Bibles, please, to chapter 1. We'll just do a brief survey, but have your Bibles open to the passages mentioned here so so you have a basic overview of the Gospel of Luke. So in Luke chapter 1, as Shaori read it for us, 
he begins with an important preface about the kind of work that he is doing and he explains his task immediately after this he launches into a unique comparison of john and jesus he launches into a unique comparison of john the baptist and jesus so the first two chapters which are called the infancy material they are not really about the infancy of jesus because they extend all the way into the preteen years of jesus we have the story of jesus at the age of 12 going to the temple so they are not really infancy material in that strict sense nevertheless the early chapters the first two chapters show the presence of divine activity right from the start in the life of jesus the presence of divine activity right from the start in the life of jesus and he also reveals how god has revisited his people in the activities of the forerunner which is john the baptist and also the one who was to follow him there are two important themes that dominate this chapters or the infancy material hear me please the first thing is god has a plan and he is executing that through jesus god has a plan and he is executing that through jesus the second thing is god keeps his promises and therefore believers must continue to trust his word and you see that in the lives of both mary and zachariah as they sing out their songs the magnificat as we call it or the benedictus they sing out songs about the promises of god and god's word can be trusted and those who experience god's grace continue to trust in him and can rest in the service that they give to god so that's the first section of it first two chapters called the infancy material then we go from chapter 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 13 which finishes for us the first section which is the introduction to john the baptist and jesus here john is calling people to prepare a people for jesus john is calling people that the one who's coming after me is greater than me whose the thongs of whose sandals i'm not worthy to untie i baptize you with water but it is just a representative right but the one who's coming after me he will baptize you with the holy spirit that is a real deal and i need to prepare a people for the one who's coming and he talks about repentance and the nature of repentance in preparation for the ministry of jesus he says repentance involves turning to god by recognizing one's sin and also serving others but john's main goal is to point out that the one who comes after him is a real deal because he's the one who brings in the spirit he's the one who pours out the spirit and that spirit when he comes upon people he's the one who's going to purge between who are believers and who are unbelievers there's going to be a separation in the ministry so that's the first section of it which is introduction to john and jesus all right is that clear yes we're all here the second one is the ministry of jesus in galilee we go from chapter 4 verse 14 in a paragraph all the way till chapter 9 and verse 50 now hear me please this is the revelation of jesus who jesus is this talks about the activity of jesus and the power of jesus talks about the activity of jesus and the power of jesus here we see three things majorly in these chapters number 1 is the fulfillment of god's promises number 2 is a teaching of jesus number 3 is the miraculous work of jesus fulfillment of god's promises the teaching of jesus and the miraculous work of jesus all of these things combine to ask the question who is jesus all of these things combine to ask the question who is jesus and the answer comes in the confession of peter that he is the messiah of god that he is the christ of god he is the anointed one of god and we see in these chapters that jesus exerts power over nature he exerts power over demons he exerts power over disease and death showing that he is the promised messiah also the disciples are called to understand that this messiah who is exerting so much power has been called to suffer this messiah has been called to suffer and they also must similarly understand for their own lives that suffering is the first step to glory and there is no glory without suffering one cannot follow jesus without realizing that the way to glory comes through rejection as the disciples themselves participate in the world which will reject them they are called to love their enemies and pray for them and to serve them now regarding the aspect of who is jesus 
We talked about three things, right, in this section, which is God's promises are fulfilled, the teaching of Jesus, and the miraculous works of Jesus. And all these point to one question we said, who is Jesus? And I just want to highlight one portion in this section and talk about who Jesus is and how Luke is beautifully portraying for us who the person of Jesus is. Now listen listen to me very carefully, please. I'm talking about Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we are given the story of the miraculous catch of fish. Okay? The miraculous catch of fish. Now, there's a great miraculous catch of fish, and Peter comes to Jesus after the catch of fish. He looks at him, and he says this, Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinner or a sinful man. Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter 6. And a lot of theologians do compare this passage which, with Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, what's happening? Isaiah is given a glorious, glorious vision of the Lord in the temple. And as he is given a vision of the Lord in the temple, he confesses immediately his sinfulness. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, he says. And then the Lord reassures him and gives him a commission to go and preach the prophetic utterances. Look at what's happening here on the Sea of Galilee. There's a miraculous catch of fish. Peter recognizes the greatness of Jesus. There's an immediate confession. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. Jesus reassures him, and then he gives him a commission. What does he say? I'll make you fishers of men from now on. So when you compare these two passages, the vision of Isaiah that he had of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, and the experience of Peter that he had on the Sea of Galilee, we see that there is a commonality. What Isaiah saw in the vision is what Peter is seeing here on the Sea of Galilee in live colors. The reason is, one of the themes of Luke is a theme of God's visitation. God has visited us. God has visited us in the person of his son. This is God in the flesh. So these chapters reveal to us through the work and the teaching of Jesus, who Jesus is. There's a slow progression, but there's a sure progression that he is God in the flesh. But this portion also explains to us how the Jewish opposition arises towards Jesus. His claims and his actions point to his great authority that he possesses. And this authority offends many Jews theologically. It offends many Jews theologically. For example, Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins. That didn't sit well with the Jewish theologians. Why? Because they knew in the cultural script that who is able to forgive sins except God alone. Is he claiming to be God? Now they were okay with the idea that he's the Messiah or he's the ruler of this people, but they couldn't digest the fact that went any further. He's making himself equal with God. And yet, This is precisely precisely the question that Luke wishes to place on the table. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God who's come into our midst in the form of man. The third section would be the Jerusalem journey. Jerusalem journey and the new way, chapter 9, verse 51, all the way till chapter 19, verse 44. What do we see here? This section is a major unit that talks about discipleship. And the cost of discipleship. Now Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. And he has the cross in view. So all these chapters must be interpreted in light of the cross that is ahead of him. This is the cost of discipleship that he is talking about. Two major concerns are in this section. Number one, Jesus needs to train the disciples for life after he has departed. And number two, he also explains how the opposition heightens towards Jesus resulting in the leadership's call to crucify Jesus and to slay him to death. But in the context, he also shows how Israel as a nation is facing judgment for missing the time of God's visitation. I said, God has visited us, but Israel as a nation has missed the time of God's visitation, and it's a dangerous thing to miss God's presence. That's the journey to Jerusalem. And finally, we come to the last section of it, where he is in Jerusalem, he gets into controversy, the innocent one slain and raised. So in the last days, there are a series of controversies that he gets into, and people see how different Jesus is from the rest of the leadership 
of Israel. He has a discourse on the end times. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man in relation to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then we see that in his death, God's plan is revealed. God's plan of salvation is revealed. And all of a sudden, we come to know and understand as we read through the book towards the end of it, that the word of God is coming to fulfillment. And he is raised from the dead on the third day, which catches the disciples by surprise which means the mission of Jesus has not ended. It's going to continue, which will continue in the book of Acts where the disciples of Jesus take the message of Jesus into the whole world, where the gospel goes from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Luke is writing his gospel to Theophilus to reassure him of the truth of things in which he's been instructed. So looking at all of these things, Theophilus can be confident that Jesus is the promised one who brings forgiveness of sins and represents the inauguration of the completion of God's plan. He can also be sure that the suffering the disciples currently experience in the world is no surprise to God since they are marching in the footsteps of the Savior himself. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and he's sharing in divine authority and he's a source of all divine blessings of salvation to all of his children. And Theophilus can be led by the Spirit in his daily walk with the Lord and he can look forward expectantly to the Lord's return when all of the promises will be fulfilled for him and for all God's children. So the point that he is trying to reassure Theophilus of is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. His promises are true. They can be trusted. But God has a plan and we must walk along in his plan. You know, in an age like ours where people struggle with identity, what an honor it is to know that we are right in the plan of God. We have an identity as God's children and we are connected to Jesus. And Luke's gospel, the nuggets from it, reassure us of these truths to the church. So that's a basic outline of the gospel of Luke and major chunks of it and we'll just look at the applications. Very quickly, first one. And I'm drawing all these applications from the first four verses that were read out for us. God has acted in history through Jesus. Application number one, God has acted in history through Jesus. The main character in the gospel is not a savior who is a figment of people's imagination. He is not a figment of Luke's imagination. After all, who on his own would create a savior who makes us all responsible for our sin and goes to pay for a sin or pay for our sin by dying on a cross? We can't make up a savior like that. Who would design a regal kingly messiah who is born in a stable, never wears a crown, never sits in a palace? You can't design a savior like that. Who would make a hero out of a figure who was rejected by his own? This is real history. It cannot be concocted. This is not fiction. It is grounded in real events of an extraordinary figure with an extraordinary story. And that's what Luke is writing to Theophilus, saying, be assured, I've done my research. This is true. This is history. And God has acted in history through Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is God wants us to know that we belong to his community. God wants us to know that he belong that we belong to his community. He wants us to see that the story of Jesus is not just about Jesus alone, but it's about us. It is God reaching out to us both with power and with compassion and humility to lift us up into his very presence. So God takes the people who are outside and makes them insiders involved and related to the God of the universe. This is great news indeed, isn't it? This is great news. The third thing and last thing. We can trust the gospel of Luke as we study it. We can trust the gospel of Luke as we study it. There are some in the scholarly community who argue that the gospels are filled with discrepancies. However, Luke, being a solid ancient historian, records the real Jesus for us and also in the process reveals the heart of God for us, that he loves us. He brings his promises to fulfillment. And God has acted in history through Jesus. And God's promises are realized for all nations in and through our Lord Jesus Christ.
So that's the basic summary of the Gospel of Luke. So from next week, we'll look at major chunks starting from chapter 1, and we'll go through about 36 passages trying to understand the Gospel of Luke. But as we go through it, let's always keep in mind, it's about Jesus. He's the one who's the center of God's plan, and the role of Jesus in God's plan is that he's the center of it all. He's the center of God's activity, and he himself is God in the flesh. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come into your presence and we want to thank you for reminding us from an overview of the Gospel of Luke about who Jesus is and why Luke is writing to Theophilus and even people like us a lot who often struggle with questions about who Jesus is and about his role in the plan of God. We want to thank you for reminding us this morning that God's plan is underway. Although he may seem silent Sometimes, when we look at things happening around in the world, God is really at work. History is moving forward. History is moving forward to its consummation, which will come at the coming of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for that. We want to thank you for reminding us that this is real history. We can trust in it. And by trusting in what the Word says, we can place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers, we are filled with the Spirit. We have been given the gift of the Spirit who enables us to walk the kind of walk and live the kind of life that the Bible asks us to. I pray for those who don't know Jesus yet, who've been listening for this hour, O Lord. We pray that your Spirit would touch them, would speak to them through this message about who Jesus is. And they can confidently trust this Jesus as the bearer of God's grace and God's promises to their lives. We also pray for the second meeting that is coming up in the time of fellowship. We pray for your blessings. And we pray, O Lord, that we'll make much of Jesus in everything that we do. We submit everything into your hands in Jesus' name.